0: Please uh, turn your Bibles to Joshua 7 and 8, and we're in this section of Joshua where the, the people have gone on to the other side of the Jordan River, and they're now engaging in uh, the conquest of this land that God has told them to conquer, and we're talking in, in these chapters about obedience to God and, and His kingdom promises, how obedience factors into that. And We're looking at chapters uh, 7 and 8. I'm going to be reading uh, chapter 7, spending most of our time in chapter 7 this morning. encourage you to be reading on your own during the week. Uh, We're going to be looking at chapter 9 next week, and then uh, chapters 10 through 12 the following week. So be reading ahead, and and that way you'll be able to understand some of the things that are happening. Uh, So read that in your, your care groups, or with your family, or with friends, and on your own and, and just be staying up uh, and hopefully prepared as we go through these, these verses to uh, have some good questions as we, as we come to the text and, and get some good answers on your own even as you uh, read through these verses. So we're going to read uh, chapter 7 together as, as a church. And so if you are able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word, And uh, feel free to sit down if you need to. Here we are beginning in uh, chapter 7. Remember, uh, Israel has just defeated Jericho, or God has defeated Jericho. Israel was there. And uh, now we come to chapter 7, and we read this beginning in verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not make all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there and from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sheberim and struck them at the descent. The hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan, O Lord, what can I say When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, verse 10, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs to their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted things, shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near... His household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I I coveted them, and I took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They brought them out of the tent, and brought them to Joshua, and all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord, and Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and daughters, and his oxen, and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord bring trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day and then the Lord turned from his burning anger therefore to this day the name of that place is called Valley of Acre. You may be seated. Father as we uh, come to these verses our, our hearts are filled with with fear with a, a holy sense of, of trembling. We know that we cannot stand before you. We know that your your righteous anger is directed towards sin. And so we, we cling this morning to your son, Jesus. This was prayed earlier by Kirk. We, we, we trust in him and him alone for the righteousness that we need, a righteousness that we do not have in and of ourselves, some of the ways in which you act are mysterious to us, and so we, we cling to the things you have revealed about yourself, hoping and trusting in you, knowing that you are great in your mercy. We pray that you would be merciful, us, merciful to us as we look at these, these, these passages in Scripture that you would have for us this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We are going to deal this morning with uh, what I believe is is really the most difficult aspect at least for me, the most difficult aspect of God's character of his, of his one of his most difficult attributes and that is his his wrath, his, his righteous anger. We're going to be, be dealing with this and this is uh, again for me the, the most difficult aspect of God's character to to submit myself to in my in my flesh, to in my weakness, it's it's one of the most difficult things for me to, to grasp about God, and maybe that's that's true for you this morning as well. I've been praying for this this message, praying for those of you maybe who aren't believers that this would be a a passage that you would not stumble over, but that you would you would come to, and come to love God through it, although it's it's a tough passage. Uh, Richard Dawkins is a famous atheist, he's a biologist, a philosopher, and Richard Dawkins refuses to debate uh, some Christian apologists. For example, uh, William Lane Craig is a, a Christian apologist and uh, philosopher, and Dawkins says, I, I won't even be on the same stage with William Lane Craig, and when asked to to defend that stance that he had taken, this, this famous atheist, Dawkins, wrote an article, and, and let me read you a little bit of what Dawkins writes as he talks about Craig and, and why he won't debate him. This atheist writes, most churchmen these days wisely disown the horrific genocides ordered by the God of the Old Testament. You would search far to find a modern preacher willing to defend God's commandment and Deuteronomy 20, for example, to kill all the men in a conquered city and to seize the women, children, and livestock as plunder. And verses 16 and 17 of Deuteronomy 20 are even worse. But of the cities of these people which the Lord your God doth give you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them. And Dawkins writes, you might say that such a call to genocide could never come from a good and loving God. Any decent bishop, priest, pastor, rabbi would agree. In other words, Dawkins says, William Lane Craig and refusing to, to distance himself from passages like Deuteronomy 20, from passages like Joshua 6 and 7 and 8, By by William Lane Craig refusing to distance himself from the God that's revealed in those passages, Dawkins finds him so morally repugnant that he won't even share the stage with him. Which presents an interesting challenge for us this morning. Dawkins says you'd find, you'd have to uh, do a, a good search to find a decent pastor who would who would hold to the God, believe in the God that's revealed in these passages. And Well, you found one this morning, okay? But it's hard. When you come to these passages, you have very limited options. You can either come to these passages and say, okay, boys, as I encounter the God that's revealed in these chapters, I'm out. I I I can't worship the God of Scripture anymore. I'm going to come, become some other religion, or maybe no religion at all. But but I can't I can't do this. Or your other option is to say, okay, you know what? I still want to be a Christian, and so I just simply I'm not going to think about these passages, or I'm going to kind of craft my my own God from the the based upon my own intellect and my own moral sensibilities. I'm going to take the the attributes of God that are revealed in Scripture. I'm going to say, okay, this, this is the God that I'm going to worship. I'm going to, I'm going to pretend like these passages don't exist. Or your other option is to say, okay, I've, I've got to wrestle with this. I've got to come to these passages and, and understand what is this that God is saying about himself? What does it mean that God has wrath like this, a righteous anger against sin? What does this mean? And, and God in his mercy... Don't won't allow us to have a superficial understanding of who He is. In His mercy, He He gives us passages like these and says, Okay, this is this is my wrath, this is my righteous anger against sin and against sinners, and you need to decide what are you going to do with this? Are you going to come to these passages and have a right understanding of who I am, the fullness of my holiness? Are you going to believe those things and believe these things about your own sin? Because as we come to these passages, we are forced to deal with the fact that God is holy in a way that we could not even begin to comprehend. And we are sinful in a way that we could not even comprehend. Very often, as I think about my own sin, my, my disgust over it is somewhat limited a few years ago uh one of my sons had had done something kind of silly a little bit foolish and it was kind of one of those things where it was it was wrong but it was also a little funny and so i was i was correcting him and he said i'm sorry but as he said he was sorry he was laughing and i said son y- you don't seem that sorry he goes well you don't seem that upset you know like how, how bad is how bad is this? If you're laughing, I'm laughing. It's probably not that big of a deal. When we see the, the, the penalty for a crime, the, the penalty for a crime is, is related to how serious the crime is. We, we all kind of understand this, right? Let's say that you're a, a young person in the room this morning. Maybe you're about, I don't know, maybe you're about 10 years old, okay? And as a 10-year-old, you have this younger sister and and she has a toy car, and you're like, you know what, I'm 10 years old, I haven't played with a toy car in a while, I'm going to play with my sister's toy car. And so you don't tell her that you're going to take her toy car, but you take her toy car, and you take it out in the front yard, and you just have a grand old time with that toy car. You're going around in the dirt, and you're, you're having just a, a great time driving around, and you, and you actually end up breaking the car, and you're like, oh, I should not have been playing with my sister's car. And So you take the car, you walk in through the garage, back into the house, into the living room, and there is your sister with your mom. And mom and sister do not look happy. And Your mom says, you shouldn't have taken your sister's toy car, and you shouldn't have broken it, and so you're going to have to give her one of your toys. And you say, okay, I, I know I shouldn't have done that. So not a big crime, right? Not a big penalty. But, but you understand this, right? Let's say instead of taking your sister's toy car as a 10-year-old, you took your mom's real car. And you got in your mom's real car and you drove around the front lawn a bunch of times and then you uh, drove uh, through the garage into the living room, okay? Now you've got a problem. How happy is mom at this point? Bigger crime, bigger punishment, right? Brothers and sisters, here's what I think we realize as we look at God's wrath. Sin is a big deal. Our failure to be devoted to the holiness of God and his glory is is a big deal. And far from being this thing that doesn't allow me to worship God, contemplating God's wrath, even contemplating God's wrath, helps me worship him more fully. In fact, here's the central idea that I want us to, to wrestle with this morning. Here's the central idea. An awareness and fear of God's wrath helps us worship him as we better understand his holiness. An awareness and fear of God's wrath helps us worship him as we better understand his holiness. These are some hard, hard truths. These are I will be just very frank with you this morning. These are the hardest passages in Scripture for me to to wrap my soul around. And I haven't figured it all out, of course, as I come to these passages, but we're going to look this morning at the story that's, that's found in these two chapters. We're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about three truths that help us as we think about God's wrath and His people and His grace. We're going to spend a lot of time in kind of that first truth, and we'll, we'll get more to that here in, in just a moment. Here's, here's the story, though. Let's, let's real quickly kind of look at the overview of, of the story, right? Chapters 7 and 8. Jericho has just been defeated. And as chapter 7 begins, we, we find out that this guy Achan did something, we're not sure exactly what moment it happened, but at some point in the confusion of the battle or afterwards as, as the plunder is being gathered together, some of it's supposed to be dedicated to God and his treasury, Achan sees three things that, that, that draw his heart. Later he'll say, I, I saw them and I, I desired them and I took them. One of them is a, a garment from Babylon, uh, the other is some silver Six pounds worth of silver and about a a pound and a half, a little less of gold. He sees those things are in small enough quantities that he's able to conceal them and he takes them back to the camp. And he thinks that's the end of it. But it isn't short time later the people are, are preparing to go against the, the town of, of Ai and Joshua sends some spies to check out Ai and the spies come back and they say, Joshua, don't tru- trouble everyone. Send two, three thousand soldiers against this and let's let's just take care of it. Don't trouble the whole camp. And Joshua says, okay. The people go. They send about three thousand people and they are defeated. They come back to Joshua's Joshua, the people, they come back to the camp, they come back to the rest of the Israelites, and there is absolute dejection and, and fear in the hearts of the Israelites. Thirty-six men have, have lost their lives, perhaps the first casualties of this whole campaign, and Joshua and the elders are at a loss. What does this mean? God had told them to go and to conquer, and, and now this, this little tiny town of Ai is able to defeat them. What what does this mean? And and Josh, when the elders come into the presence of God before the Ark of the Covenant, and they fall down before the Lord, and they say, God, what are you doing? What, what, what What's your plan for us? Why did you have us cross over the Jordan? We should have been content to stay over there if we're going to suffer defeat at the, the hands of these people from AI. Other people are going to hear about what's just happened, and we are in real trouble. And, and what's more, Your glory, Joshua says, is at stake. What are you going to do about your name? As the psalmist says in Psalm 113, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Your your glory is at stake. And God responds, get up. Joshua, you haven't considered the fact that I I am faithful. This isn't an example of my faithlessness. This is an example of my faithfulness. I I told you that if if the people sinned, I, I would not be with you. And that's exactly what's taken place. You have you've broken my covenant. Relationally, we're not where we need to be. Relationally, there is there is there is disconnect. Some of the people have, have taken things that were devoted to destruction. You've, you've broken the, the covenant relationship that we had. And now, here's the danger that you're in. And, and as, as God says these things, communicates these things, the, the heart of Joshua and the other elders must have just melted in, in shame and fear, trepidation. God says, I'm no longer with you. Because now the people of Israel at this point, they are those who are devoted to destruction. Remember before it's the Canaanites and and, and some of the things that are devoted to destruction. Now the people of Israel, you are those who are devoted to destruction. You've you've taken yourself from being holy because you're associated with me. and, and, And now I'm not with you. and Therefore, you're in the same boat that the Canaanites are in. He says, again, get up. Here's what's going to happen. You are going to deal with this sin. Tomorrow you're going to consecrate yourself, and we're going to find the people who are responsible for this. I'm going to reveal them to you, and you are going to deal with it, and you're going to deal with it decisively. And indeed, that's what what happens. You read there in the text that Joshua gets up early the next day. He's not going to let a lot of time pass before they deal with this. And he calls the whole tribe or representatives from the 12 tribes and and he casts Lot to to see which tribe has the, the guilty party in it and he selects the tribe of Judah and all 11 other tribes breathe a sigh of relief, grateful that they are not responsible for the sin in the midst of the people. But recognizing they still as as a corporate group need to deal with the sin. And then and then from the tribe of Judah, the different different clans are represented. And they, they cast lots again. And the Zarahites are selected. And all the other clans breathe a sigh of relief. And then each household from the clan of the Zarahites are brought forward. And Zabdi household was taken, and then man by man are brought up, and Achan, as he knew he would be, is selected. It's revealed in front of all the people that he has done something that's brought the disfavor of God on the people, that has separated them from covenant fellowship with God. Joshua says these words to Achan, he looks at him and he says, my son. Give glory to, to Yahweh, to the Lord God of Israel. Give praise to him. Tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan tells them exactly what's happened. He says, I took these three things. He tells them where Joshua can find them. Joshua sends men. They find them. They bring them before Joshua and the people and the Lord. And then the, the punishment for the sin is enacted. And it is a terrible punishment. Achan and his family, and, and presumably his, his family was aware of what had happened as well. Achan and his family are, are stoned. That is, representatives from the community, not just an individual, performs this execution, but representatives from the community. And, and so, in a sense, the whole tribes, all, all the tribes of Israel, the whole community of, of Israel stones him. They're all responsible for removing the sin from their midst. Then you come into ch- to chapter eight, and, and chapter eight is 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 also a very very somber passage. There's a, again destruction of the city of Ai, and and there's there's victory for the people of Israel. But the dealing with the the, the uh, town of Ai is is fearsome as well. We we encounter j- complete destruction of the city, complete annihilation. And then you come to the end of Joshua chapter eight, and. The people renew the covenant with the Lord, and and remember when we were in the book of Deuteronomy, we talked about a future ceremony that would take place where half the people would stand on one mountain, Mount Ebal, and the other half of the people would stand on Mount Gerizim, and the blessings and the curses, the blessings and the curses of the law would be read by the Levites in the middle between these two mountains, and that the people would would agree with what the Levites were saying. And here, as the blessings of the law and the curses of the law are read, they've they've just seen what happened to Achan, kind of a a visible manifestation of the curse. And the people, as they say the blessings and as they say the curses, they're they're in, in essence saying, in and of ourselves, we don't, apart from God, we don't deserve the blessing, we we deserve the cursing, the the curses. That's that's what's happening in chapters seven and eight. It, it, it's it's a terrible story, and I'm not sure where you are spiritually this morning, but but this is a story coming to to Josh with the book of Joshua and chapter 6 we looked at last week with Jericho, and and the chapters that we're in this morning, 7 and 8, and the chapters to come, these are chapters that demand a response. In other words, you cannot read these passages and just kind of sit back passively. You you can read the story of of Jesus and the the five loaves and two fish, and you say, well, my, my, isn't that a nice story, that Jesus provides food? You can read a story of, of, God parting the Red Sea and the, the people of Israel walking across on dry land. Say, but isn't you know God is God is great and God is mighty there. And you can read the story of of a a blind man being healed, and you say, Well, my isn't isn't that isn't that a wonderful thing? And and all it is wonderful. It is it is sweet. There's there's beauty to that. But then you you come to these passages and these are are chapters you cannot read passively. You've got to do something with with what God reveals about Himself in these chapters. And, and it's not something that you can just say, well, I'm not going to really have to think about this. These are chapters, these are stories that force some sort of response. And I would suggest to you this morning that the right response is to have an awareness of the holiness of God and our sinfulness and to respond in worship, fearful worship even. Let me give you three truths here. That, I, I, that, that are regarding God's wrath and his people and, and his grace that I think will help us worship him even if we can't fully understand how he acts and the things that he does. Here, here's the first truth. And we're going to spend the most time on this first truth because I've got I kind of did a trick here. I gave like one truth and then a bunch of eight like sub truths. But here, here's the first truth God's wrath is terrible. It's terrible. His, his anger at sin, his, his righteous anger at sin is terrible, and it's directed toward those who break his covenant. The Canaanites experience God's wrath. The the Israelites experience God's wrath here in chapter seven. We we see it other places in Scripture that the Israelites can experience God's righteous anger. Achan here in chapter seven experiences God's righteous anger, And, and and these this this wrath is so terrible that I, I recoil when i consider it and my my mind can vaguely get around the idea that god sovereignly appoints people to die but but the fact that he that his wrath here seems all the more terrible because there's human agents who are bringing about this this destruction this this is hard you know sometimes i've i've talked with people about these passages over the years and and sometimes people have kind of dismissed it and said well you know it's it's God's sovereign and we're wicked and, 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 and there's no sense of, of, of horror at what's happening here in the, in the sense of, of the terribleness of it. As one person uh, put it, it, it's easy to think about when it's an abstract theological problem, but here as we, we immerse ourselves in, in the lives of Joshua and the people, it becomes more tangible, it becomes, becomes more real. If this is the God you worship, there has to be an awareness of this attribute and, and we have to deal with it, not, not just push it to the side. And I think that's appropriate to do. Remember Mary, whenever God tells her she's, she's a virgin, he says, okay, you're going to, to have a child. Remember how she responds? She says, okay, I, I, I believe this, but, but how can it be so? Now, Zechariah is told that he and his wife are going to have a baby and he says, well, how can I believe this? What Mary did is appropriate. What Zachariah does is wrong. It's appropriate for us to say, okay, I, I believe that what you're saying is true, but, but help me understand it, versus saying, well, I don't believe that what you're saying is true. So here are some thoughts. As I come to this, this truth that God's wrath is terrible, and it's directed toward those who break his covenant, so the people break his covenant, they break relation with, with God, and so they, they fall underneath his wrath. Here are some thoughts that may or may not help you. These are thoughts that help me as I wrestle with how terrible God's wrath is. One is this. Number one is this. I I have to believe and cling to this truth that all that God does is holy. Do you remember the definition of holiness we talked about when we were going through the book of Leviticus? It's, It's complete devotion to God's glory. Sinclair Ferguson says this: "It's it, it, holiness is, is devotion. It's holiness is be, it's a belonging to Him that is irreversible, unconditional, without any reserve on our part. Simply put, holiness means being entirely His. That all we do and possess are His. We come to think." all of our thoughts, and to build our lives on this foundation. The things that are holy to God are those things that are, are devoted to him. To be holy, to be sanctified, Ferguson writes, to be holy, to be sanctified, therefore, to be a saint, in simple terms, is to be devoted to God. So all God does is, is holy. All God does is, is, is devoted to the the, the the proclamation of his glory and, and by God's grace my good him doing kind things to me is part of how he glorifies himself now what this means brothers and, uh, brothers and sisters is we we have to start with this this truth God is holy in other words I don't start with the truth that I am great I don't start with the truth that I am wonderful I start with the truth that God is holy friend recently posted on his Facebook page. He said, uh, God is not doctrine. God is not denomination. God is not war. God is not law. God is not hate. God is not hell. God is love. And what he was trying to do was to paint a a picture of God that's that's unbiblical. His implication was, you know, I, I get to define what love is, and then I get to reinterpret all the other things that are in Scripture in light of that definition. So I can say that, God is not doctrine, I mean that God isn't concerned about truth. I can say God's not going to be concerned about a pure church, that God's not going to engage in warfare against sin, that God's not concerned about morality, that God's not going to judge people. He's just going to love, which I get to find as exalting myself, right? So I start with this truth, God, God is holy. Now, here's, here's a second thing that might help us. Here's what I'm, I'm confronted with. I am not as committed to or as convinced of God's holiness as, as I should be. So if holiness is, is devotion to God, you know this to be true of, of all of us. I, I'm not committed to or as convinced of God's holiness on a moment-by-moment basis in my life as, as I should be. Now, here in Joshua, a city was to be devoted to God, was to be to de- uh, devoted to destruction, as we come to the new covenant, all of me is to be devoted. My, my entire life is to be laid down at the altar before God. We see Paul describe that in Romans. I live in, a, I live in constant disobedience and deserve God's wrath because I am not devoted to God and His holiness as I should be. I come to passages like Matthew chapter 5 and I can't understand them. You know what? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. I come to a passage like Matthew chapter 5, 29 and 30. And I'm not, let's be honest, I'm not that convinced of my lack of devotion to God. I don't think I'm that bad of a person. And so that passage confuses me. I don't understand how radically I need to be devoted to God, and, and of course Jesus is speaking in, in hyperbole. I don't want to see next week a bunch of you, a bunch of one one eyed, one handed people come in because they've they've taken extreme measures trying to deal with sin or any other physical ailment that you've done to yourself. What what we want to see is okay. I recognize how radically I need to be devoted to God and His glory, and anything that stands in the way of that. Is, is sin it, it's it's worthy of of intense punishment I'm not as convinced of that as I, as I should be I'm not committed to God as I should be it's easy to think about it in the positive in terms of devotion it, it's easy for me to think about the, the positive aspect of God being completely behind pursuing, his glory and and his people devoting themselves to his glory, it's harder to think about the the negative side of that. What this means is that God is not only for his glory, he's opposed to those things that would distract from his glory, detract from his glory. Those things would pull us away from his glory. God is opposed to those things. And brothers and sisters, I am not opposed to those things in my own life as I should be. If God takes sin this seriously, I must take sin seriously in my life as well. Now here's just real quickly, you may not have time to write all these down, but, but here are some other things we see. That, that As I wrestle with these passages, here are some other things that we see as it relates specifically to what God tells the people to do to the Canaanites. A third thought here, number three, the sins of the Canaanites were particularly wicked and demonic. The sins that the Canaanites were engaged in, they were engaged in incest, bestiality, they were involved in child sacrifices, you find skeletons of children in jars in such a way that uh, from this time period that suggests widespread sacrificial system, they were clearly engaged in demonic idolatrous practices, they had given themselves over to demonic worship in a way that is, is shocking. And number four, the Canaanites refused to repent and they remained in opposition to God. They refused to repent and remained in opposition to God. Salvation was possible. Deliverance from God's wrath, righteous anger against sin. It was possible. Rahab shows this. And yet, uh, we, we see... We see that the, the people don't desire uh, to turn from these these things. In fact, next chapter we're gonna talk about the Gibeonites, and, and the problem with the Gibeonites was that they wanted to be they wanted peace with Yahweh without being in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. So repentance was possible, but the people, instead of submitting to God to Yahweh, were committed in their opposition to him. Number five, a fifth thing here. Uh, the Canaanites the people in this land that the people of Israel are, are, are called to conquer represented a danger to the Israelites and really to the eternal salvation of all nations, including the Canaanites. Here's a remarkable thing. Remember that God's goal was not to destroy all nations except Israel. As you go back to Genesis, what, what is God's plan? God says to Abraham, my plan is to make a covenant with you. And I'm going to make a covenant with you so that you'll be blessed, and you'll be a blessing to all nations. And so God's plan was was to bring about salvation of all nations. And as you go throughout the rest of the text of Scripture, you come to passages, like in Psalm 87, and all the nations are engaging in worship, and if the, the Canaanites continue to dwell in the land, in the way in which they're dwelling in the land, Such salvation would not be possible from a human perspective. Israel would not be able to fulfill God's purpose to be a place in which God's name was glorified instead of be a place where there's demonic worship. And so God says, okay, I want to bless the nations and the Canaanites and their, their demonic practices must be removed. I would need to fulfill my purpose to bless the nations, including the Canaanites, through the coming Messiah. The Canaanites had to go. Here's a sixth thing to think about. God's war, not the Israelites' war, but God's war against the Canaanites is, is often misunderstood by critics of Christianity. Now, he, here's a couple things to think about. Sometimes people use the word genocide to describe what's taking place here. Earlier, when I read from Richard Dawkins' article, he used the word genocide, and, and that's not what is taking place here. What happens here is, is terrible, but it's, it's not genocide. This isn't about ethnicities. God isn't saying, "Okay, I want these ethnicities gone forever." He's saying, "Okay, I, I am going to deal with sin." It's not about ethnicity, but about sin. In fact, if it was just about ethnicities, uh, Israel wouldn't sometimes find itself under God's judgment. Right? It's also limited in scope. As, as the, it's as they're engaged in battle. In other words, God doesn't say, "Okay, go in this land and, and kill everything." He's saying, "Okay, come in and, and in these battles in this limited scope. You're going to to, to, to there's going to be total destruction." they're limited in their authority as well the Israelites don't have the authority to kill whoever they want it's these these specific battles and it's they're limited instruments and so it's not every time that they're to kill sometimes God has described procedures to bring the people into covenant relationship there's language that describes driving them out instead of annihilation so God's war against the Canaanites is often misunderstood by critics of Christianity who read the text very casually and don't wrestle with what's actually taking place in in the text in fact so, for example, it, it's, it's limited in scope. Uh, later in First Samuel, there's a word used to kind of describe, similar to, to here, the complete annihilation of the Amalekites. And yet, you find the Amalekites a couple chapters later. And so what you see is it wasn't total elimination through genocide of all Amalekites. It was in that battle all the Amalekites were, those who were engaged in that battle, were completely destroyed, not complete destruction of all that, that uh, ethnicity. But here's the seventh thing, number seven. Nevertheless, nevertheless, t- despite the fact that critics of Christianity and, and the Bible are going to, to not rightly understand these passages, nevertheless, for the sake of my own soul, I must not minimize the terribleness of God's wrath. God deals with sin. He's done it in the past. He's doing it in the present. And he will do it in the future. In Revelation chapter 6. Says the kings of the earth. The great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone. Slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of God for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? My soul needs to understand the penalty that awaits me because of my sin, and my soul needs to contemplate that Christ has borne the penalty of God's wrath for me. And if I minimize the terribleness of God's wrath, I minimize what Christ endured for me. Which brings me to the eighth thing to think about, number eight. As I contemplate the reality of God's wrath, I cling to my trust in him and all his fullness of God. As I think about these chapters, I believe that God is omniscient in a way that I am, I can't even use that word to, to, to describe me a little bit, right? I'm not even kind of or whatever he's omnipresent he's omnipotent he's a fullness of, of mercy he's he's the fullness of, of all that is holy and it's, it's hard to say this but but God's the author of life and he knows what's going to happen to those who are killed as I contemplate the reality of God's wrath I, I cling to what I do know about him that I trust him in all his fullness of God uh, C.S. Lewis says this he says I'm convinced of the character of God and then I continue in that trust. Just as I would trust a friend even when confronted with truths about him or her that I, I can't quite reconcile it at first. And then to paraphrase what he says next, he says, Complete trust is an ingredient in friendship. And such trust could have no room to grow except where there is also room for doubt. To love involves trusting the beloved beyond the evidence. No man is our friend who believes in our good intentions only when they are approved. No man is our friend who will not be very slow to accept evidence against them. I believe that God's ultimate goal is to see the Canaanites engage in worship of his name. And I don't understand how all these things fit together. And yet I believe that God is completely devoted to his holiness. I believe that God's wrath against sin is real. And as I contemplate the reality of God's wrath, I cling to my trust in him in all his fullness as God. Number two. Here's the second truth that I want us to contemplate. Again, we're preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. God's people are responsible for dealing with sin, both individually and as a community. The stoning of Achan here shows the communal responsibility uh, to deal with with sin, and it's, it's a completely foreign concept to our culture. You know, you live in your house, I live in mine. We're very separate from one another. But here we see this, this communal relationship. In fact, as we take communion, what we're saying is that there, there are no relational barriers in our fellowship with one another. There's no, no grudges. We are in relationship with one another through our shared hope in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And here's the third truth. Number three, God's grace is the reason we receive the blessing of the covenant. He receives the curse. The people, as they come to the end of, of Joshua chapter 8, renew the covenant, and they stand on these two mountains, and And one mountain represents the curse, the mountain in the north, Mount Ebal, and the mountain in the south, Mount Gerizim, represents the blessing. They read all the blessings of the the, the covenant, and they read all the curses, and there's a, a sacrifice on the mount of, cur- of cursing, and as they do that, they are saying, we do not deserve, essentially what they're saying is, we do not deserve the blessing we are heaping condemnation on ourselves because we deserve the curse. As we come to passages like this, we recognize, look, it is only by God's grace that we are receiving the blessings of the covenant promised to Abraham because Jesus Christ has taken upon himself the curse. We must not minimize his wrath. We need the fullness of God's wrath to be poured out on Christ for our sins. That's why God's people are not under God's wrath. Not because of our own righteousness, but because of the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus. And this morning, I'm going to invite now that the men to to begin to make their way to to prepare to pass out the Lord's Supper. Here's what I would encourage us with. I would encourage us to engage in, in, first of all, repentance, to say, okay, I, I recognize this morning that the nature of my sin, I, I intellectually understand that, that I have not been obedient to God in the way that, that I should, and I would encourage us to, to be, by God's grace, concerned about that, to say, I, I, I am disturbed, I am sorrowful for the way in which I have transgressed God's commandments, and by God's grace, I commit this morning as I prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, I, I commit myself to walking in deeper obedience. An awareness and fear of God's wrath helps us worship Him as we understand the nature of His holiness. Let's pray, and then, then the men will begin to pass out the elements. Father, We pray that in your grace we would walk in obedience. We pray that in your grace uh, we would have hearts that that are reconciled to you. We thank you for your son Jesus who takes the penalty for our sins for us. And now, Father, as we partake of your supper, we profess our faith in you. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus.